by, by the way, I, the totally different thing, but I, I was just going to tell you that I may move the sale back that I announced, you know, for the 16th. I may move that back by a few days. And the reason is when I told the office, now remember, I told them the sale was going to be the 16th. The GMT weekend at the warehouse ends on the 14th. We have to reconfigure a warehouse, give people some time off because they haven't slept. Right. And so when I told them the 16th, they gave me looks that made me think, you know, this might have been what Caesar felt like right before the knives came out. Hey gang, it's Harold, and here's another podcast. This podcast is offered in two parts, and it's singularly composed of an interview with GMT Games president Gene Billingsley. We'll discuss his work at GMT and also his latest design, Mr. President. Brought me here on the highway list, take where the ends don't seem to justify the Gene Billingsley founded GMT Games in 1990. As Avalon Hill turned to computer games and was eventually sold to Hasbro, Gene built GMT into the new home for board wargamers. He started with some of his own designs. These titles garnered instant acclaim. Operation Shoestring was nominated for a Charles S. Roberts Award, and Silver Bayonet and Crisis Korea both won Charles S. Roberts Awards. I'm sure his current design project, Mr. President, won't disappoint. As the distribution network for board games went into retreat in the 1990s, GMT pioneered the pre-order system called P500. It remains the best deal in board wargaming. The system allows GMT to thrive in uncertain waters as customers vote their interest in designs and accelerate the production schedule of the most interesting. Customers get 30% off and can cancel at any time. The company is now the bellwether for Conflict Gaming, anchored by Gene and his partners Roger McGowan, Mark Semenich, Tony Curtis, and Andy Lewis. GMT continues to produce high-quality games with marquee designers like Mark Herman, Richard Berg, Vokal Runka, Chad Jensen, Ted Racier, and many others. I spent a couple of days with Gene during his semi-annual weekend at the warehouse. We discuss everything from college football and his beloved Sooners to how he encourages designers to develop the breadth of offerings GMT has become known for. We start the day with Gene cooking me some scrambled eggs at his home in Hanford, California. While he claims the recipe is from Richard Berg, I doubt it due to the lack of random events. Say that, mm-hmm. but they are really good. That is true. And they've got depth at the quarterback position. 
you know, if that, their, their quarterback is amazing. Right. But if he went down, their number two guy is not bad, right. you know. How many number two guys in the country have won a national championship? Right. So, you know I've tried to keep politics out of Mr. President as much as I can, to not show this as right. a partisan right. political Right, sure is hard. It is hard. I, I don't want to add to, you know, what makes me sad about our country, is right. people yelling at each other and not listening. Right. So I've tried to create it in a way where you get the challenges of the President, but your, your mind fills in the story from your point of view, right? Because there's got to be some of that as you're the president, but you fill that in, I don't fill that in for you. Right. So we did something in Tempe. We got this playtester, his name is Rick. He's a great guy. He is probably as dyed-in-the-wool right-wing as anybody I've ever met. Right. Shocker. Yeah, but to tell you something about him, his best friend is the other way, you know, about as big on the liberal side as there could be. And that told me something about Rick. You know, right. he feels that way, but he doesn't let that get in the way of his relationship. He doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't uh, judge you based on how you exactly. The same problem. I think we still got to be able to reach past all that stuff and and be neighbors and friends, right. and root for each other. And so, but listening to Rick, um, he play tested the game in Tempe for four days, and Tom Sodajewski and I were there, kind of helping him. I was working design stuff, and Tom was helping facilitate the game. And Rick talked out loud. He basically shared his thoughts as he was playing the game. Right. Oh my gosh, it was funny. <laughs> Just to hear a totally right-wing view his of what he was on. doing to these godless commies. Right. You know, and stuff I would never put in the game, right? <laughs> but it was hilarious. <laughs> and it reminded me that that's going to happen with this game. And it's going to be a special part of the game. Right. Is hearing, or you hearing yourself. You know, right. you enjoying that. Right. Bringing your own views to and the game. And that makes it all the more important that you play it down the middle so that Exactly. Regardless of your politics, you can have that narrative. Exactly right. That's so good. So it made me feel like I was doing something right with the game to hear his expressions <laughs> of, of disgust or delight, you know, as as he was playing the game. Right. Okay. Lovely. Looks so good. I, I, lo I love that about people when they can have strong views, but not let those strong views get in the way of other right. people. Right. Water get a start on. That's right. Okay. You might so. need that. You need this. OJ? I'm good. Water? Uh, we got water here. Okay. I don't, is that my. Uh, where's your seat? Where do you sit? You sit wherever you want. You know, it's, uh, is this Ron Glass from last night? Uh, yes, it is. All right. Don't don't worry about the green stuff that's on it. Just you know, drink the water. <laughs> wow, this is good stuff. What? Yeah. All right. Good. Six ninety nine before you leave. Love it. Put it on my account. <laughs> yeah. I've gone, Harold. That account's getting big. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. 
My grandpa used to say that. He'd come over and, you know, I had one of those grandpas that he just, he lived for us, which was such a blessing in my life. And he'd come over and fix the TV or build a fence or build a shed or, you know, he was just always at our house. Or, you know, the first eight years of my life, I grew up on his farm. And so he and I were inseparable. You know, he, he taught me everything about farming. I spent every day with him. But he would come over and he's just one of those guys. He, he didn't care about money. He, he did care about in the sense of savings and, you know, the whole depression mentality of, of making sure that you saved and didn't spend. But in terms of being generous with his money, he also grew up in that depression era where you helped your neighbors, you helped your family, you, you did whatever it took without concern for how much you had left. And so he did so many things for our family. And we weren't needy, you know, but he just was always there to give of his time or his money or whatever. And my, my parents uh, would occasionally say to him, well, just put it on our bill. <laughs> and my grandpa would get this big grin on his face and he'd shake his head and go, kind of cock his head one way and he'd go, you know, that bill's getting pretty large. <laughs> But, of course, he, he never had a thought to... Right, right. He wasn't going to collect on it. No. And so that kind of became a, a legacy for our family. You know? Yeah. I've watched my parents do that for my sisters and I. And we and now we're doing that for our kids, just pouring into them. Yeah. You want the next generation to be better than you are. Right. To do yeah, more. In the, end, I mean, in the end, that's your legacy, right? When you have that first kid, you kind of start to realize that that's really what I'm going to leave. <laughs> True. That's the mark that I will leave. I work with, you know, I work with Rachel, one of my daughters, and Rachel's amazing. Yeah, she's awesome. After breakfast, we jump into my car and head over to GMT Warehouse. It's a beautiful day in the Central Valley of California, and the warehouse is only a short drive. It's <laughs> good that bad. You got tons of room. All right. Right side of the seat. Okay. Although it's kind of fun watching you sit up there on the dashboard. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I shouldn't have told you. There we go. And it goes down too. Well, I do that right. I don't know. There's a lot of a lot of adjustments. Just. Go and go to your heart's content. Uh, now I'm good. Jerry's gonna go. What did you do to my car? <laughs> so that little puppy rides there, shotgun with Jerry in a seat that's up, and she's seatbelted in. It's yeah, it's the saddest thing I've ever seen in my life. And well, Percy doesn't have a seatbelt. Sits in the truck with me. Yep. Has to be right here on this thing. <laughs> he can. He, he puts, I'll be driving like this, and he puts his chin over. You know? <laughs> Isn't that great? Just, yeah. I, there's something about it. It just melts my heart every right. time he does it. That's awesome. Percy's a good dog. Yeah, he's a keeper. He's 10 this year in about two more months. So you're going to have to help me get to the warehouse. All right. You want to go right. So this is another police officer down the street? Yeah, we got all kinds of police street? officers on the street. It's great. It's nice. Well, it depends on what you're doing, right? Well, yeah, if we're cooking meth in the really, back, it would be Cooking so meth a problem or uh, the parties. So we're going to keep going straight to the next stop sign, and then we'll turn right.
got to go a little different way now because 13th is all torn up. So once we turn right up here, mm -hmm. this is 11th. The avenues are a mile apart. Right. So we're going to go to 14th. Right. Got we it. get to the warehouse early, and it's already a buzz with GMT fans. Some people have been coming for years and remain excited about the opportunity to play amongst the massive stacks of games in the warehouse. They're also excited to see and engage some of their favorite designers, including meeting with Gene. Gene greets everyone like they're an old friend. The office staff is hard at it, making the event run like an electric car. Good morning, Elizabeth. Long time no see. Good to see you. Good to see you too. But I'll ask him when he gets here because right. I didn't like that. But she did respond to him. But all right, well. Saw John Kranz and Mark Simon each just the end of August then. In Dallas? Yeah. Yep. My sister-in-law had her knee replaced, so, yep, had dinner with them and lots and yeah. stuff, so. And Tony was, I didn't realize, I kept thinking Tony was in Oklahoma Dallas. City. Yeah. He said, Mark said he's just like 10 minutes away from me. Yeah. Hello, how are <laughs> I'll you? I'll be going back in December again for our other knee, so. Yeah, when well, I'm sure back there, my sister, I can, I can see both of them, so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of nice then. All right, well, I'll be out there in a bit. Okay. Here, cut your teas and your drinks and your Thank drawers. You. You're awesome. I'm going to grab one of those teas right now because I need to wake up. Harold came at a really good hour. He came like before, around 10 o'clock. But then we stayed up and talked for, you know, <laughs> yeah, a while. Too. That was partially my fault. Okay, a lot you, my fault. You get a lot of high percentage of the words are yours. But that's okay. That is true. It's okay. Yeah, so what happened is I was doing this, and Harold was doing this, you know. It was good because I'd been seated for so long, I had to get to stand up. Yeah. And you got up to yourself for a little bit. Yes. Because we'll be pretty yeah. busy this weekend. That usually doesn't happen for, for long. Awesome. I'm glad we got some of that stuff on tape because I don't know how much structured time we'll get. We can even do what yeah. you want. But. Yeah. Well, the structured time's good because it's all audible and clear. As soon as I, I walk out this. there, yeah. I'll bet's change. Well, I'm going to try to follow you around, please. Oops. Sorry. Sorry. Have you met Stacy Harold? I don't think Harold, so. Stacy. Stacy, how are you? Good, how are you? Nice to meet you. So if you ever cough, you make it for as well. Good. Well, I'm calling for you every time. Well, Stacy is the one that kind of has straightened out Elizabeth. And oh, Leticia is that right? And Artie, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, now that they're, she's straightened out. She's they're, a they're a mess about her, you know, so... She Very brings. Funny. How are you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Oh, awesome! So awesome! Awesome! You. You're the best. Um, I may leave Friday night, so okay. I won't miss all the Saturday stuff. So okay. I have a bunch of games to pick up from you, and um, we'll work on that the next couple of days. Sounds good. Thanks so much. Excuse me. So I'm going to try to follow you, Gene. Okay. So if there's some, if there's a conversation you don't want me to listen to, then just give me a rude sign, and then I'll <laughs> smile, and then you'll have to give me another rude sign. Cause but um, yeah, let's whatever you want. Let's do the structured part, All right. and then and then we'll do a combination of. Let me go out and take a lap. Okay. Here you mind if I join you? No, it's fine. Let me, let me look at this just real quick. Yep. Because I keep 
I'm going to leave this so bag So this morning here. I'm supposed to do a podcast thing with you. Yes. I've got a dinner tonight. I don't have a lunch today, which is good. Although I may have a lunch with Troy. I'll check them. Usually we do that. Tomorrow's lunch with Bruce. I didn't schedule a lunch or dinner with you because I figured we were going to have breakfasts and... Yeah, what plenty of time. Yeah. I'm going to talk to the play deck guys when they get here. Sometimes they want to have a private conversation with me, and sometimes they don't mind if I bring designers. So just depending How on how... How much is the coffee? Can we drop 50 cents in the... Yeah. For the coffee? I don't even know, but yeah, fine. Okay. I'll, I'll ask Elizabeth. They oh, okay. So if it turns out, I'll tell them. I'll say, here's the designers that are here right now. You guys want them? Fine. Yeah, yeah. And then I'll yeah, ask you guys. If you need me or want me, I'll be happy to join. Um, I just never know quite what their agenda yeah. is. Yeah. But you've met them, right? Yeah. So. Well, I had a dinner at Gen Con. Gen Con. And. After a round of greetings, Gene and I sneak into an internal meeting room and get down to brass tacks. Well, it started in the late 1990s. Uh, I think we had a really informal event in 1998 with just like 10 of us. Uh, but 1999 was when we really started it. And we didn't have a venue because uh, we weren't in this building then. Uh, so we went and I, I had a friend who uh, was a manager at the local mall. And they said, you know, we've got a couple of spots that are open and I can't give them to you. You'd have to rent them. Um, but they would work for a weekend. So the first two or three of these that we had... We had over in the local mall in an empty, you know, an empty store, basically. And, you know, we had 30 to 40 people, roughly. And I like that number because, really, for me, uh, it's the fun of getting to put faces with names and getting to see, you know, it's a different thing when you when you watch people enjoying a game to when you see them write about it online. It's, it's just different. You know, so sitting down with people and playing a game with them or even just walking by and seeing the expressions on their faces, listening to the table talk and the conversations while they play the games, that just, it brings a human dimension of all this into me. Um, you know, we make games and it happens to be something that we're, you know, relatively good at. Uh, we all have different skill sets. So I, I like that we do that. But what really moves me is you know I guess I'm I'm known now for the the sign off enjoy the games that, that that really is what moves me I like seeing what happens to a human being when they sit down and play our games whether it's a solitaire game or whether um, they're playing here I stand with five other, five other people and immersing themselves in that time period and just seeing the joy in, in their faces um, so. This weekend is a time where I get to see that up close and personal, and most of the year I don't. You know I go to shows, um, although not nearly as many as I used to. Um, but that's why, really. I like to connect with people and just see their connection with the games. Right. So we um, we got here this morning and had a chance to walk around, and everybody loves you and wants to talk to you and meet and, and, and meet you and uh, share at, what's At least on. one of those things, right? Yeah, that's right, that's right. <laughs> If not a few others. So so the experience, though, as I watched, was you met with a handful of design teams right. as we were walking around. And um, 
you met with um, you met with Chad and Kai, right? And they had a, a new game they were very proud of. By the time this podcast is out, that will be released for sure. But uh, the uh, dominant species marine, right? And then you went and sat down with uh, with Trevor Bender and talked to him about his new and coin j- and Jason Carr and Jason Carr. Thank you and and talked to him about his coin game and and. I, I think I can see that that gives you energy too, right? The fact that 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 these people are working on these projects, and you can sit down and absorb the game in a very short period of time and give them feedback that really is meaningful and important to what they're doing. Gene met with design team Trevor Bender and Jason Carr to discuss a developing coin concept in modern Syria, utilizing up to six players. Here, population yeah, is one million. Population is one million. The biggest city in the series is one million more than uh, Colombia. Arbogata. Couple mountain areas. Almost all these areas are are loyal to one ethnic group. There's five different ethnic groups in the games. All right. So that'll help in recruiting and movements. Yes, right. and the so you're representing Hezbollah? Yep. There? The Iran-Hezbollah connection. That's what that impacts. It starts off at Hezbollah control. All right. In addition to that, you have, you track certain faction areas. There's six factions in the game, two of which are government, Syrian Iraq, four of which are rebel, the Free Syrian Army, Al-Nusra Front, the Kurds, and uh, ISIL. Halfway through the game, ISIL becomes government. So you're going to then have three government factions and three rebel factions. So it'll be the first coin game where you have government on government conflict. So that's the civil war nature at the encounter. So you're representing when they got enough resources and structure that they were a government. When they became a caliphate, they were, they were administering territory, offering services, paper having a civil administration sure. in addition to the military. Good. Yeah. So now they're a government side, they're just not the government side that's tracking with the other governments. Right. right. They are, they're a yeah. transnational government right here, pretty much. That's clever. Right there. I like that. Yeah. So right across the border. I know you don't like locks, but they're key to the game, especially this one huge oil pipeline right there. No, I mean, I, I do like LLCs in the in the series. I think that they're one more barrier to entry. So when people talk about Cuba Libre being the easiest, I think one of the reasons, one of the big reasons is not just that it's the pop, there's fewer provinces and fewer yeah. movement, but you don't have LLCs. Yeah, it's easier world. to learn. I think the big accessibility improvement for this is going to be that all the rebel factions and all the government factions use the same player. So here it is. It's very simple. You're, if you're government, you're on this side. If you're rebel, you're on this side. With the exception, if like the United States comes in and gives you rebel airstrikes, you can use that capability, even huh. as a rebel faction. Now the key to this is we so have six, asynchronous, but not so much. Not so much. And in okay. fact, because it's a six-player game, in many of the games you're going to command two factions. If you don't, if you don't want it, the box run it. And so this is really easy to flip it over. We'll, we'll print six of these in the game. What's going to make the faction more distinct is the fact that there's different levels of intervention for all the different international powers, and there's different effectiveness and capabilities. I think that's going to be fun. That's it's one of the things yeah. I liked. You know, Mark Herman kind of did that first, I think, in Flashpoint Golan long ago. Right. With the intervention and, and uh, Chad has, um, with the next war series, we've done a little bit of that. So I'm, I'm interested to see how that plays out. So we have six factions, and I'll start in this order here. And the way the sequence is determined is it's not by a faction order on the card. Each card can be different. 
and each of them has a rebel event and a, a government event. Of course, you could choose whichever one you want. And then this player will choose first. They could say, I'm going to choose the event. And let's say all the rest just choose like this. So then at the end of the turn, they slide up. So now he is choosing six because he took the most advantageous event on the next card play. Okay, so you start and just go in that order and yep. nothing's on the cards. Nothing's on the cards. So but he can do... This determines next turn order. Yes. So okay. if you take light preparation, which is gain two resources, you're posturing for this card instead of this one. Got it. Because then you'll go first. But you'll have two resources. You're preparing for it. Heavy prep gives you three resources and second choice and so on. And... He's up. That seems like it'll work. How, yes. How's it played out so far in testing? Does it work? So far, so good, but it, I tell you, it's very limited. This is more of a demo kit than a play test kit. I've got 20 yeah. cards made, which span the gamut of both Civil War and the Revolution time period. So we're going to have anticipated 72 cards total in the game. The first 36 are what we call the Revolution deck. The second 36 are the Civil War deck when, when ISIL with, has its caliphate. the intention of having the ability to play just one, just the other? Yes, the short game. So it'll be a six-turn game. Each turn is one year, starting in 2012. Once the revolution is flowering in both countries, it's 2012. But you can play slices. Yeah. You can do the first three years, the bottom three. How's it play solo? Uh, we're, we're working on that. Okay. We're working on that. I will tell you, Bruce is very interested in using his current bot from Gandhi for this game. He okay. Really wants to so, try to and I'm, I'm, anything you guys want to do to share and learn from each other, that's what we do. So that's all good. I, I guess, you know, one of my concerns, going way back to when we first talked about this, especially solo play, this is a lot to manage. It's a lot. It's a lot to think about. The, the one thing you would probably do for solo is you would control Iraq and Syria, and the bot would do the other ones, or you could play the rebels, and the bot would control the government factions. So you, you think we may do a little bit like the original Labyrinth, where we we choose what the so, what you can play solo. I think that's a good move. Well, that's an interesting idea. Do a two-player game, government versus rebel, both sides. I like that idea. I haven't thought of that before. A good move. Yeah. Because you're right. If I'm sitting down to play, I might play all six sides. That's a big game. But I'm probably not going to run five months. Right. I think that's just too much overload. Agreed. And one of the things I want to show you on this turn sequence, you know, negotiations for a peace settlement were huge. This, every time, every round it goes up one. Plus it might go up a couple or back one based on the card you play. And then you roll two dice. If the two dice are greater than this, then there's an international event that's a separate table that triggers. It's a very small minor event, very quick playing. If it's the exact same as this, then you pick another card and put it out there and immediately auction off as an unforeseen opportunity. And so whatever money you have, everybody takes a die, puts it under, bids whatever they want, whoever has a high die wins it. Um, and then if there's a tie, you, you roll dice to see who wins the tie. How so do you do that with bots? The bot will bid whatever its resources are if it rolls that number or less. So if you have six resources, it's going to bid up to six. Well, it'll bid whatever whatever it rolls. Yeah. All right. But if you if you bid less than if the die roll is less than this, then uh, you begin the interface like you have in any coin game. That's considered the peace settlement. Right. So certain cards move you faster towards peace, or certain cards like in Assyrian government, they're delaying the peace. They want to move into Aleppo and take it over. So there's those events will, will slow it down. No propaganda cards in this one. 
Well, it's, it's considered uh, the negotiation track. There's no card that triggers it. It's a die roll. So the but die stacking is much simpler then. It is. Yeah, oh, it's cool. very easy. Take, take the number of cards, shuffle them. You prep the you, deck. You prep the deck, yeah. And, but the double dice roll also serves if you roll doubles, then you might have two random events. Yeah. And, and, or you might have two off. Exactly yeah. yeah. What I do like, you know, there's no, this unforeseen opportunity is huge. I don't think any of the other games have it where something just pops up and now you bid on it. Because it incentivizes you to save money, which is always in the coin game. You're incentivized to spend money. You know, now you got a, a, another conflict to think about. Decision point. So we have a. Th this is a question that also goes back to the first time we talked about this. We have a lot of players that are really interested in playing a game like this from the perspective of where most of our customers are, the United States or from a European point of view, those two especially. Um, we, we do have a lot of customers also in Russia. You know, for people that don't care so much about what's happening at the, at the six player micro level here, where, where's the fun for them in looking, or is, the, is it here in this game, them looking at it from a macro level? Well, I guess as the game goes on, the European Union and the United States will engage with those various factions, but they might engage with more than one, and those factions are represented by players whether the internationalists are not. But you'll see that level of activity. There are several events where Trump launches his tomahawk line at you know, missiles into Syria. You know, you, you see that as, a, as an event. But. I think what you're getting at is fundamentally Iraq is aligned with U.S. interests, and Syria, I think, I think is aligned with Russian interests and so as a player who is approaching this from more of the like I'm a US okay I don't know the conflict but like where's the American involvement here so like Iraq's trying to prove the legitimacy of the government that the United States has basically created Good point. there and Syria is trying to prove the legitimacy, legitimacy of a government outside the sphere of the United States and I think that story underlies all of the faction interactions. It's like, well, Iraq wants to be a real country. Syria wants to be a real country. They kind of have to be able to prove it. Well, and ISIL wants to create its own right, right and, between and them. And you've got that. that so that's kind of a meta-narrative that's running underneath. Yeah. And so the, the challenge for us is going to be to pull that out because I think it's really easy to get into the, like, how does Iraq interact with Al-Nusra? No, not that. How did ISIL and Iraq interact um, but it's a little harder to talk about, like, well, how does what Iraq is doing create legitimacy for an Iraqi government? And then yeah. you have the Kurdish question that's been yeah, the side of the man. This is going to be huge. Yeah. And I, I think that's where players are going to find a lot of enjoyment here. My, my encouragement would be be careful about getting too bogged down in the micro. Right. Because there are going to be people that play this. I'm, I'm not saying I'm one. I might be. <laughs> who say I don't really care about those groups that are fighting in Iraq you know they don't mean anything to me I, I don't have any attachment there so the game's an intellectual exercise but I don't really feel when I play it to try to help them learn and engage with the meta narrative I think that'll bring this game to a, another level so I, you know it's your game but that's yeah. my encouragement that's good. That's what we did with Gandhi with the nonviolence. You don't have to know so much why the INC or ML are doing what they're doing. The mechanics of the game teach you about nonviolence simply by playing it. I want you to play Iraq and feel like I am a struggling government trying to prove I'm legitimate and have that be the thing that you walk away from and say, oh, wow, Iraq must be struggling to be legitimate. Right. And all this other stuff happened that yes, I didn't really yes, care yes, about yes, that yes, much. Yes. I just had to manage it. 100%. Right? But that's what I was about. Yeah, that makes sense to me. 
Well, it's nice to see the game as a game now. Yeah. You know, when I first saw it, it was an idea. Here's what I'm going to do, and you know, that's what that's what happens, right? We, we go from idea to game. It, it looks manageable to me, and the LLCs, honestly, not that big a deal. And anybody that's played a distant plane or Indian Abyss, they're going to handle this. I think one of the first things you learn when you play those games, especially if you play as a as a non-government faction, is that players who learn to use LLCs win, and those that don't lose, right? And in the startup, there are already pieces on the LLC. Some of them are already sabotaged, and some are ready to go. So oh, nice. they're going to learn that rule on the very first turn. Okay, good. I want to show you this, Gene. This is the map that I drew two years ago when I first came up with the idea. I took a picture of this and sent it to Jason two months ago. And we, we I guess, had three editions of this map, and now it looks like this. You know, you guys are pretty smart. <laughs> this is based on two travel maps that I bought from Syria and Iraq and, you know, taped them together. I like this. And drew it out, figured out the population, you know, the ethnic areas, the cities. So I really appreciate Jason's help on this project. It's been fantastic. Let me get some texture on this map with Chechu or whoever. It's, it's going to yeah, look better. Yeah, I'm not yet. an artist, right? So, no, no, no. This, this looks good. Yeah. And, and I love this stuff, you know, yes. to, to give it character. Yes. This is, a map, this is a map from Google Maps that I traced over. Wow. That's why you can see all this stuff, because it's all snapshot. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Syria is this big, and so we have challenges, but like Tardis is like a really tight space. It's the really, most populous region. <laughs> I really think what we may end up having to do is make it not to scale and explicitly call out like, yes, Al Anbar is a lot bigger than what it looks like on the map, because it's a huge empty space that's not going to get played as much as, say, Italy. Mm. So... From an American perspective, that that's where we have Americans right now. Yep. Right? Uh, there and in... Well, I, I know there's some up here, yeah, but, but I mean, the, the ones where there yes, have been skirmishes yes, yes, and yes. where we're flying airstrikes to defend those guys, because they're really an extension of our Jordan, presence and here. And there's a lot over here, too, right? with the Kurds. Yeah. So how do, how do those uh, dynamics play out in the game? Are they cards? To represent the government pushing here when there's intervention? When uh, the interventionists come into play, they enhance the capabilities of the various factions, which could be rebel or government. So if the U.S. Special Forces came in, they got to Tier 2 or Tier 3 ground forces involved, then you would give additional cubes or cylinders to whichever faction they're supporting. So there's no positional aspect to that? Like Gene's saying, this is, this is where we're starting from. You don't care about where the U.S. actually is. They're well, just kind of affecting the whole map. The, the location of the bases will matter. That if you have a base in Jordan, then they'll start off there okay. and then move forward. Or in the case of the U.S. forces that went in to help the Kurds started over in Iraq and then moved north into Syria. We'll, we'll nudge players that way with the cards. Cool. There's another key thing to the game too, Gene, which is instrumental to this whole conflict, which is population movement. So we have three million people starting over in Damascus. Is well, this a Aleppo. Light? Uh, ADP. A it totally is, oh, okay. except in distant plane, the six million people are coming back. They're resettling. Right. The returnees. Here so these out. these can either go up one or they can go down, like a down two. Depending on how they move. Depending on the move. So anytime there's a battle where three or more units are affected in total, you roll on the refugee table. Add, you subtract the number of terror and sabotage markers. The terror forces conflict sabotages lack of jobs, <coughs> and then you might displaced population. They'll go to an adjacent place. They might go to an adjacent country. So Jordan could get the 4 million refugees it had. Turkey the same. So if they go to Europe, does that have any impact on the speed of intervention? 
It does. In, in there are events that are triggered by how many refugees have already been triggered in, in terms of bringing them on. I don't have them actually migrating from Turkey or Jordan to Europe yet. I guess I could try to come up with something along those lines. Right now, they'll just sit out in the. Oh, regions. I think what we'll probably do with that is I've been thinking about that actually. Okay. So if I may, you get you get four million in Jordan. Okay, card comes up about European migration. It takes them off of here, and then there's some massive. I like event. it. I like it. It's good. Shifts the European Union. Yeah, something clean. Yeah. That still lets you say. There's a sympathy effect here. There's a, oh no, we've got to deal with this effect. That but, but let's be real, those, those, the, the Syrians who are in Germany and France, they're not coming back. No, they're not. So they're no, those, those populations. They're never coming back. The impact is on those governments. Right, exactly. So Syria has 24 million population. In reality, 12 million have displaced, 7 million inside Syria, 5 million outside. So, it has a, and, and the whole goal of the game is controlling population. So tell me about the meta narrative for Russia. If you're, if you're somebody that cares about what Russia's doing here, well, if you what's look this at, game going to show you? If you look at the factions that the U.S. and Russia are aligned to, that'll inform a lot of it. So these flags are the different factions that this country can even okay. support. So the U.S. will support um, the Syrian opposition, the Iraq um, and the Kurds. government, and the Kurds. They won't support Syria. And so Russia, on the other hand, supports Syria and... Um, ISIL, potentially. ISIL, potentially. And that's it. So that conflict is going to come out in the way that these factions are, are using the foreign intervention they have. They are opposed to each other. Um, so these... My, I, I get that. So thank you. My, a suggestion, just make these prominent somewhere. Yeah. Because I, I know like one of these flags, I, yeah. two of these yeah. flags. We're still so somewhere... More than just right here. Right. Yeah. Make them very yeah. prominent. In fact, I think it shows on the control bar. Syria. Got it. Right. Okay. Good. I could make these flags bigger too. They used to take up most of the box, and it was kind of confusing what that was. So, so I, I, I guess you know part of what I'm getting at there, and this is not a criticism. This is, I think, a challenge of the game. When we approach a game that we have to admit in the beginning, we just don't really know that much about these factions. We read things in the news. We, we get that, you know, Russia's behind some and the U.S. is behind some. The Kurds, the Turks all have interests. We kind of understand the larger meta narratives better. Everything you can do to draw players into this. To, because if I'm playing the available Syrian opposition forces, you know, or, or the Syrian opposition forces, who am I? What do I care about? What? How do I win? All those things. In, in the sense of a coin game, they're automatic, but in the sense of getting me emotionally into the game and what I'm doing, um, if, if I don't get that engagement soon, I look at it and go, ah, it's pretty cool, and I walk away. Okay. You with me? Mm-hmm. So, how to pull players in to care about the positions they're playing when they don't know much about it? I think that's a challenge. Um, I, I think you're moving that way already. But I, I would just say that that's a big one I see, and I think that makes a difference okay. of whether this game sells okay or whether people go, wow, this really taught me a lot. Like a distant plane, you know, most Americans when they, who would sit down and play a distant plane, they know our guys are in Afghanistan. They don't, they don't Pashtun is. They don't understand Warlords. what the Pashtun <laughs> and what the Warlords care about. Yeah. And I think that the vocal and Mike and the whole team did a really good job, and then Brian. Of, of bringing people into that and saying, okay, here's what you care about and here's why it's important. And, and you know, I, 
I don't like playing the Taliban, honestly, personally. I don't. Because I don't like what they stand for or any of that. But I think it's fun to play the Taliban now. <laughs> now you know, in the game, because yeah. I can get into the mindset. You can get invested in your and, and it's like game. I'm playing a game, and, and here's what I'm trying to do. I, I totally don't agree with anything they're doing there, but as a player, I can play it. And because I think they did such a good job of, of bringing me emotionally into the conflict. So I think that's probably not something they did their first day. You know, it's, it some, it's something they worked yeah. in over time. I just want to put that out there because I, and feel free to disagree with me. No, I, no, I, think I just right. think that's a big challenge. I'm already thinking the narrative in the playbook to describe each of the six factions and each of the six interventionists, what their goals are, put all that in there. But I want to, I want us to get that in the mechanics. Right. Sure. Bruce really is the master of that, by the way. Just, I don't know if you've played Gandhi lately, but. I have not played the new version, but I'm looking forward to later well, today or tomorrow. We got the final. We printed out the. Uh, I saw the map line. Isn't it nice? Yeah. New thing at job. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was impressed. <laughs> so yeah, it's good. It's, what, um, what else do you want to tell me about this? One of the things is each of the six factions is going to be tra- tracked for unit quality, their unit cohesion, and airstrike effectiveness. So, for example, when you have a battle, you're going to look at. If you have green troops going, you have to have four troops involved to get one hit on the opponent. Then your opponent's going to shoot back. If they're seasoned, they're going to shoot back at one-to-one. So anytime you initiate a battle, you're going to have to track those odds. It also varies by type of terrain you're in. The defender doesn't matter what type of terrain. You're always going to have a good shot. But the attacker's terrain affects their ability to go on the offensive. When casualties happen, they go to the casualties box at the end of the, the... administration phase, you get back whatever your level of unit cohesion is into your available. The ones that don't go back go to unavailable. There are certain events and international events that allow you to bring your unavailable forces back. Now, I'd assume that these intervention forces are always seasoned or veteran? They're represented by the forces that are being played by the different factions. So, like, if U.S. Special Forces are helping FSA, they'll be represented by those markers. The reason for that is that the U.S. Special Forces aren't the ones doing the shooting. They're equipping and training. They're, they're enhancing. So, oftentimes, they'll enhance the unit effectiveness of that faction. It's a common event is to increase their effectiveness. What about the Russians? Mercenaries, you mean, specifically? The Russians. Yeah, they would be represented by red cubes within the Syrian army, which as would Hezbollah as well. Not much distinction there. I mean, that's a good question, and I'm hearing what you're saying is... Yeah, I'm not loving that. You're not not seeing the narrative of how the U.S. and Russia are... I think you could make that narrative more clear if I could look at a piece and say, those are Americans, those are Russians... Now, it might totally screw things up. It'll introduce more cubes. Well, what I'm thinking is this. This is is just straight up. Maybe you do it like police. I'm thinking like Pendragon, right? So if you play Pendragon, when you get um, Federati, you put the counter on top of them. You say, these are Federati. And they behave differently because they're Federati. I totally see us taking... Because I don't want another color of cubes. I don't want another faction's cubes. But take those Syrian cubes and you put a U.S. part, a Russia marker on top of it. And it says, these are Russian-equipped Syrian cubes. They behave differently. Okay. And that tells that story you're looking for. Um, here's where Russia is on... Here's where the U.S. is on... Um, so there's some ways we can play with that to really... Cause what I'm hearing you say is, I want to look at the board and go... United States. I think that's. I don't want that to come across like a big nationalistic thing. That's no, not no, how I no, mean no, it. No, no, no. I mean, we want to take players from what they know to what they don't know. Let me it's see just it like being in the classroom, right? So, hang on just a second. Yeah. So, 
So what they know right now is whether it's America, Russia, the EU, they know they've got troops and, and air forces and intel people in certain places. You know, if it's Americans, we know they're in Jordan. We know they're in, in south, southeastern Iraq, uh, Syria. We know they're up helping the Kurds. And we, and we know they're kind of all over Iraq. And, and so the game doesn't have to be about that. But as far as pulling people into a situation, we need to take them from what they know, which means let them understand what they know easily on the map, and then move them into how, how the dynamics of the simulation work. Okay. I'm sorry, go ahead. All I was going to say is, I think what we really want to be able to have people do is say, I see myself, I see my interest somewhere in here. So if I'm Russian, right. where is Russia? If I'm right. European, where is the European? Exactly. <laughs> American, right. it's the United States. Exactly. not because the U.S. is great. In fact, no. part of the story we're going to tell here, I think, is more to do with how we've got how messes are created. Well, we um, don't want to take a side. Yeah, you know, I, I think one of the greatest things about a distant plane is that it, it has a lot of fidelity yes. to what's going on yep. there, but it doesn't pick a side. Yep. If you can take a side when you play, you know, and you can say, "I'm going to try to make all those inefficiencies of the Americans be better as I play this game." And I, I want to see that here too. I think yeah. it's good. You know, that you can you can play the game as a interested Russian war gamer and start with where are our troops. You can have colored views of other factions that different from differ from how a player in another country would feel. Yeah. But you can both learn something. You can both really engage. With the sure. game, mm-hmm. and I'm just—I'm afraid that the factions themselves are not interesting enough to pull us in in the beginning. Long term, as you play them, yeah, you'll know. Mm-hmm. Just like with Columbia, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, that was my concern with yeah. Indian Abyss. So, two cents, or whatever it's worth. Very, very, very thoughtful. Two cents. I like this a lot. That, this is a refinement of the original, which was you had to do uh, a ratio. No, it was a percentile, on, yeah. yeah. Like it was a percent percentage yeah. times a percentage, and I was like, let's yeah. make a table. Modified by terrain, modified by Yeah, I, I like that a lot. You know, we, we didn't really see anything like that until Fire in the Lake, right. when, you know, Mark and Volko and I had this very long conversation. Basically, Mark and I were trying to beat up Volko, and, you know, in a nice way, to say, hey, we need. You know, we need casualties if we're going to represent Vietnam. And, and you know, to Volker's credit, he, he heard us. He listened. And then, then he designed a mechanic that was more elegant than either one of us would have thought of. And so that's good. That, that's how we work. And I think this is a really good refinement of, of that. When we're modeling a civil war, not an insurgency. Right. Which is a completely different level of escalation. Right. And, and, and the casualties are significant. Oh, they are. Yes. Yeah. I'm still thinking Million. about how to make that as accessible as possible because we've got the ratios where there aren't going to be remainders most of the time but there's still the 4-3 and 3-2 results that I look at and go <laughs> that's asking people to do some math yeah it is yeah you might you're right there, there's room for some refinement there I guess the thing I like best about it is this yeah this, and this that's what happened back. in Vietnam <laughs> yes. you know in, in fine like but you've but you've taken it a step further and you said there's not just U.S. troops defending here. There's different kinds of troops. I like it. 
I like that a lot. So how do you do this? Um, we have these counters that correspond to the different. So like they're they are poor. So all of their troops are certain. Yeah. And you, you talked about police before. It's because the only way you can do it, huh? But that's actually why I like having the capability become the counter that sits on them. Because then you can actually add that shade of gray of, like, these are equipped by the U.S. So they're, they're stronger. Than the rest yeah, of them. you could do that in a plus one type thing of quality. Add a line or move them one or something. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So the, you mentioned about police before. This game doesn't have police. Instead, it has regular and irregulars. And the reason being is the militia, more often than not, acted as a controlling authority. So to do a civic action, you need both a cube and a cylinder. The cylinder represents the irregulars. And both, all sides have I irregulars, really but not all sides have cubes. I enjoy the... Working with design teams, part of my job, you know, it's kind of my job is to help manage and support those. Right now, I think it's 57 design teams, which is crazy. Wow. Um, but the thing is, they're not designers to me. These are guys who are my friends, who most of them way smarter than me, seriously, um, who have a passion about a particular project at that point in time. And I want to help them make that as good as they can make it. And so just like me when I'm designing Mr. President or any of us when we design something, we all kind of get myopic in the way we look at a project. And I think one of the abilities that I have is to come in and look at a project and just ask questions. Hey, have you thought about that? Have you thought about that? And maybe get to the heart of, of some of the issues they may run into and, or maybe help them solve some problems along the way. So, and I don't do that all the time, but I enjoy it mm -hmm. when, when there's an opportunity to do that. Right, it's great, and I know it's much appreciated. I can, uh, I could see Trevor wheels turning. Right, he's got he's got some big wheels, and so. that's the cool thing is I really don't have to solve problems for these guys. I just have to make them aware of them, <laughs> R really. And, and you know, sometimes I think it's like a good game developer. You know, he should be able to point out very clearly to a designer what the test teams are finding to be issues with the game. But then unless ask, he should back off at that point and let the designer solve the problem. Now, some designers work better collaboratively, so they may ask, you know, hey, what do you think? What are some possible solutions? But I think that's kind of my role with the design teams. Uh, this looks great. Uh, you know, when I sat down with you in Tempe, uh, looking at South China Sea, I, I think I complimented you on the design and, and not, not um, speciously, but, but s sincerely about, hey, this is really good. This is really good. Right. Then I said it might be a tad long, you know, things right. like that. Right. Um, you might not have thought about that before. Mm -hmm. um, pointed out a couple of interactions. Th this feels clunky to me. This, do we really need this? You know, kind of clean up. A lot of developer kind of stuff. Right. And then I usually try to give people a sense, like I just did with Trevor, of, hey, from the marketing side, if you thought about how to do it this way, we could sell more. Because, hey, these guys are making money from this. And, and some of it's just extra throwaway money. It's not a big deal. Some of them, it's a big deal. And so I want to try to optimize their time investment any way I can. So if I know something would sell better, you know, the, the, the case in point, you know, look at Wilderness War, what, how well that's done for us over all these years. When Volko initially had that game, there was it, it was set up as a campaign game, which took, I don't know, eight to ten hours to play. It was long. And then he had this cool little three-turn scenario that was secondary, that you could play that if you wanted. 
And I think Andy Lewis actually had the idea first, but I, I remember being in that conversation where he said, what if we flipped this? And what if we made the focus of the game the tournament scenario? And, and it made all the difference because suddenly it wasn't a 10-hour game to play. It was a game you could play in two to three hours. It was a very tight tournament scenario. scenario. I mean, Voco did a great job on it. And now if you ask somebody about Wilderness War and they're talking about the game they played, I guarantee you 99% of the time they're talking about that tournament scenario. Well, what was the difference? It was the same game. <coughs> it's how we marketed it and where we put that last bit of polish on it. And so I had a conversation with Trevor about that today, about, hey, here's some things you could do to maybe think about making this more accessible to more people. Right. Uh, and that's really, I don't believe in the marketing side of like, like some companies, not in our industry, but, but you know, some companies marketing is like fool the customer into buying your product. I don't want to fool anybody. Um, but I do want to optimize our products so that they're more, they're more likely to appeal to more people. Right. And so if I, if I know that information, but I don't share it with a designer, I don't feel like I'm doing right by them. So is your is your exchange with Trevor, who has one excellent design under his belt and a lot of modifications that he's done in over time, is it different than the, the conversation you have with Chad and Kai? Yes. Um, but not out of any intention to be different. I think the natural state of things is that the more you work with people, the more of a comfort level there is, the more things you assume, the more things they've heard you say before that they already took care of this time when you looked at this game. You know, so I find myself having to say less to Chad. Um, we still have conversations about, hey, what about this and what about this? And, hey, let's try to tweak this to make it appeal. You know, one of the first things Chad said to me today about this game is he said, I took the three things that I heard the most as negatives about dominant species. And I tried to solve those problems in this game. And I asked him what the three were. And he told me, and I said, that tracks with what I think about the original dominant species, which I love. Right. But, but those are the things that, that frustrate me the most. You know, having to keep track of who has dominance, for right. example. Right. That's something that on the digital game, when it does that, I, I really like it. Because I don't have to spend any brain power figuring out who's got dominance. Well, he took care of that already in this design. So we didn't have to have that conversation about these three things because we've done this before now. You know, we've done a lot of projects together. And so the guys that we've worked with many times, it's easier. And I, I find I have to say less or I, I feel like I have to say less. Um, and it's no slap on the guys that haven't. It's just, you know, it's a process. Right. There will be a day, I hope, when Trevor's done five or six games with us. And my conversations with him will be like the conversations I have with Chad now. And that I, I've seen that to kind of be true right. over time. And the other thing is, um, you know people's strengths and weaknesses better over time. And it's not like I'm looking for weaknesses, but we all have them. So I tend to look at what everybody's strong at. And then try to find resources or people from the development side or testing side or whatever to help cover for those areas where they're not as strong. Right. And so the longer I work with somebody, the more clear I am about that. Right. I, I don't pigeonhole people that way because we all grow. Right. Um, but I, I find the other thing with Chad, by the way, is that he's got Kai built in. I mean, she's an amazing developer. So by the time the two of them have brought me something, 
you know, I don't really have to talk a lot. <laughs> right, right. No, she's uh, she's extraordinary. Uh, the two of them together, right? I mean, that's a franchise team right there. You know, so the interesting thing that I see from GMT it, that's different than the way I imagined it before I got to see the inside. I assumed that Gene or, or a committee sat at the top and said, we need this game, this game, and this game designed, <laughs> and then applied resources. And what I find is the absolute opposite, that you embrace the designer's desire um, to make a game. And then, once the designer delivers a game in some state of completeness that you're comfortable with, then you list it on the P500. And it, I have to say, it's a, it's a very, it's counter to what most people believe happens. So I'd love to hear you talk about how that works and, and why, and how it's worked so wonderfully for you so far. Well, I, I guess to me, it starts with just a core belief that we're going to become really good at the things we're passionate about. We may not be really good at those right now, but if, if you have a passion for something, you're going to put in the time and the energy and the cycles, and eventually you're going to be good at it. So it just made sense to me to not be the guy that gave out assignments to designers. You know, I could do that if I wanted the result to be mediocre, but I don't like mediocre games. I don't buy them from other companies, and I don't want to produce them at GMT. I want us to do exceptional games, games that where, where the designer's passion shows through. And I'm really proud, you know, to point to our, our line of games and say, you know, in the main, that's, you see that. You know, you did Liberty of De or Death, your first game for us. Were you passionate about that topic? Yes. About the game? Yes. You know, I mean, how did that make you feel when you came into GMT and nobody was telling you that you need to step outside that lane, you know, and right. do something different, but you had all these resources coming to help make your vision real. So I think a couple of really beneficial things come out of that. One, the product is better than it otherwise would be. So we're helping our customers. We're putting a better product in their hand. You give me, you know, $50 or whatever it is for a particular game. And if I can up your enjoyment by 30 or 40 or 50% by having a passionate designer, then I've done right by you. It, this is in my mind, <laughs> you know, as a customer. But then another thing you know I'm always very concerned with is team building. I, I don't look at our designers as just, you know, slots on an org chart. Those are relationships. And so like any relationship, whether it's your wife or your kids or whatever, you know, there's like a plus bank and a minus bank. <laughs> and, and you go to that minus bank too often and you're going to have problems, right? And so I feel like it builds relationships to say, this is your baby. We're going to help you optimize it, make it the best it can be. We're going to put you with a team of people that you're going to work with once. And then after that, it's always going to be easier to work with them. And so we're going to set you up not for one game, but for as long as you want of games to work with a team that's going to help you take your vision and make it really awesome. And by the time you get to doing your fourth or fifth game, that's going to be your best game. You know, it's very rare. And I, I just don't know of it where your first game would be your best game. Maybe Ananda and Jason, you know, with, with Twilight Struggle, that, that was pretty wild. Right. 
Um, Conversely, for them, the best game was their first game. Yeah, right? but the thing is, that story's not over yet. What I'm always looking at designers going, I wonder what they're going to do. It's part of the fun for me, watching people improve. Because you know, you've done it now. Um, we all get better at our craft. You've worked closely with Voco. You know that Voco is about as good as they come in this business. And, you know, Mark Herman, guys like that, John Butterfield, those guys are amazing. Every one of those guys still works at their craft. They still listen. They still learn. They try new things. That's what I love is trying to create an environment where that thrives, where, where people don't have to worry about, is somebody going to stab me in the back? You know, are they not supporting me? But you've got everything you need. And you can just work on getting better at your craft. Because then I look and I say, well, you know, so I, I basically make a judgment. You know, you and I had a conversation before we ever took liberty or death. And I ask you some a little bit off the wall, different kind of questions probably. I was trying to figure out if you were going to play well with others, if you were going to fit with our teams. Because to me, that's what matters. You could be the best designer in the whole world if you can't fit and play well with others, work with our teams, it's not going to go well over time here. We just don't have a lot of guys that say, I'm the center of the world, who stay with GMT. It, it, it just, it's, it's not an environment that's conducive to that. And so when I, when I find somebody and I go, wow, they're going to play well with others. They listen and speak. They're smart and they're team-oriented. You know, those are the – that's the secret sauce, I think, for us is that mix of – really smart designers and guys that that work well with teams and will listen because then we're all getting better so there's no reason that your second game shouldn't go smoother and shouldn't be a better design now what the market says who knows you know that that's that's not the final arbiter of, of whether you did better with your design um we we like it you know <laughs> it sells a lot right but basically what i get to work with that's really fun for me is guys that feel good about the fact that they're developing and progressing and making good products and that the relationships they have within our teams are better and easier. There's all this cross-pollination with designers that you know that goes on at GMT. And I don't, I don't make that happen. It just kind of happens organically right. when you have that kind of an environment. And you know, too, the environment's not perfect. We're always working on it, you know, because people are people. So... You have to be dynamic, and you have to respond. When somebody comes and tells me, hey, Gene, I've got a problem, you have my attention because that's not a minor thing to me. You know, I want to help recreate that environment where you can thrive and be creative and, and all that. So, so to me, that's, that's what I really get joy from. So when I sit down with designers at a place like this, it's just part of that ongoing um, commitment to relationship with those guys we will take a break here we have more from gene billingsley in part two of an interview with gene billingsley 